Welcome to the 7 Days to Amazing podcast, where you learn how to make your life, business, and style even more amazing in the next week. Now your host, Sharon Haver of FocusOnStyle.com. Hello, Sheiksters. I'm Sharon Haver. You know how I always say that you are about to be amazed in my intro? Well, today's special guest on the 7 Days to Amazing podcast takes amazing off the charts. Allison Levine is a history-making adventurer who has climbed the Seven Summits. That's the highest peaks on each continent. She served as team captain of the first American Women's Everest Expedition and skied to both the North and South well, it doesn't stop there. Allison is the author of the New York Times bestseller, On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. And I might add, it's a fabulous read and quite funny, too. And she's a former <laughs> adjunct instructor at the U.S. Military Academy. She is also a sought-after keynote speaker on the subject of leadership development. And if you can't lead a team on Everest, what else can you lead? She is currently producing her first film, The Glass feeling, which tells the inspiring yet tragic story of Fasang Lamu Sherpa, the first Nepali woman to summit Everest. So without any further ado, I want you to welcome mountaineer, polar explorer, author, leadership expert, keynote speaker, quick wit, and style savant. Yes, I said style savant. Allison Levine, I am thrilled to have you here with us today. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you. And I will tell the listeners, let's keep the expectations low. I mean, that was a, a pretty big setup there. <laughs> Well, you know, also, like, let, let's let people know where, where we met first. We met on Twitter. I, I did a tweet, and Allison answered me, and somehow, I don't even know how, it was a, it was a fashion, I didn't even know what the tweet was, it was something about fashion or beauty, and it led me to have Allison tell me about women on Everest fixing their lipstick, and I'm like, wow, Everest, you know, and I think <laughs> I may, I, we may have been in our place in Jackson Hole, where, you know, I'm like so lame, if it's like an inversion, I can't go cross country, because it's 17 below, and too cold for me and I'm like sitting there, oh my god you climbed Everest twice you climbed the seven summits and we kind of became fast in awe I, at least I was in awe of you Twitter friends and, and yes and then it became conversations on shoes and dresses and all sorts of you know other stuff that wasn't as daredevilly as as uh being a mountaineer I know so, and it's so funny because people just assume because I do these extreme sports whether it's you know, climbing a big Himalayan peak or skiing to the North or South Pole that I have, you know, no interest in fashion or anything like that. And it's actually not true because I do. I know they're very um, sort of diametrically opposed, but I, I love all those outdoor sports, but I also do really have an interest in fashion and think it's really important. Yeah, I, I think it's too. I think it's, it's style is, you know, as you know, it's a matter of, you know, showing up and how, how you how you look and how people perceive you in, in the first few seconds of meeting you, especially when you're a speaker, because Allison is also a very well-known, highly coveted keynote speaker. And when you're on stage, you're not coming out looking like, you know, you, you're just cleaning, it, cleaning your skis and taking the snow off your snowshoes. You know, <laughs> you know you're it's there funny and you're gorgeous. 
I um, and it's it's weird because what I wear on stage tends to affect my speech. Like it changes huh. my delivery style. Whether I'm in, like sometimes I'll just want to be in something that's more edgy, um, like a like a you know leather like a leather dress with leggings and motorcycle boots, or I'll be in something that's more fashionable, like a like a Victoria Beckham dress or something, which uh, I. I'm a big consignment store shopper and a big yeah. uh, online, you know, whether it's online or the ones in New York. Every time I'm in New York, I go to the consignment stores. But you can get, you know, a $2,000 dress for a couple hundred bucks. So um, my, I, I noticed that my delivery style when I'm on stage changes based on what I'm wearing and what kind of mood I'm, you know, and I, I pick what I pack based on what kind of mood I'm in or who the audience is, whether it's a more formal audience like the, you know the tax partners from PricewaterhouseCoopers, or whether it's a if it's a software company, I'll wear something a little more edgy and a little more fun. But my, I find that what I say on stage and the way I say it changes based on what I'm wearing. That, that's I'm, that's so fascinating, and I, I you know I I can't totally agree with you anymore. But I I know when I talk to a lot of women, I've, I've been in a speaking group, and and they don't seem to understand that 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 it all is part of your package and it's part of your mood. It's part of everything. And I'm so glad that you brought that point up because if anyone can solidify it, it's you. But you know, I know even still, and I'll ask you if you do this a little bit. Like I was doing a, a very short speech last week, and it was for women entrepreneurs, and most of them work for home from home. And I knew that I had to sort of dress in a way that I was like totally relatable so I wore like a big cashmere tunic and a pair of leggings and you know killer shoes because I could wear the same outfit working from home with sneakers or I could take off the cashmere top and just wear the tank top underneath and the leggings and the and the sneakers but now I was on stage and I added the necklace I added but you know the hot shoes and it was to make that make myself more relatable to that audience do you find that you do the same thing when you're on stage besides it affecting your mood but kind of bringing them in that way through your appearance Absolutely. And it's funny because I always have the, the agency that represents me as a speaker, they always ask the client, what is the attire for the meeting? Because I don't want to stand up there in a fancy suit when everybody else, and you know, where, you know, the audience is in jeans and mm -hmm. flip flops or whatever. I mean, that, the flip flops doesn't happen often. Occasionally, you know, for a tech company or something, people are dressed super casual or it's, resort casual if they're holding the meeting you know somewhere in florida or something like that but uh but i always want to know how the audience is going to be dressed because i want to dress in a way that they can relate to me and and know that i can relate to them absolutely absolutely and you know to to, to go back to let, let me just say one other point is you know allison if you go back to focus on style and google Allison Levine, she did a really cool interview with us a few years ago about her packing tips because, I mean, this girl zigzags around the country like nobody's business speaking. But one of the funny little responses that I think it was also a tweet where you came back to me, and I think this is so cool about you. You're like, I forgot my hairbrush. I had to use a fork. <laughs> <laughs> you learn to improvise. You really uh, do. And um, yeah. I, you know, I could be on the road for 17 days in a different city every day, literally, you know, Monday, San Diego, Tuesday, Orlando, Wednesday, Scottsdale, Thursday, Atlanta, you know, back and forth like that for 17 days. And I have one carry-on bag. So I have to learn how to be really, really efficient. And you learn to, you learn to improvise. And that's something I learned in the mountains too, because 
when you're climbing a big peak, you can only take the stuff that you can fit in your backpack. And the more stuff you have, the heavier your pack's going to be, the slower you're going to go, and the more difficult it's going to be. So you learn how to get rid of everything that's not absolutely necessary, and that's actually what sort of forces you to improvise when you don't have something that you think you need. You just figure out how to get by without it. Yeah, I know. I have to say, honestly, that if I had to do that kind of stuff, I would probably be like Goldie Hawn and Private Benjamin. You know? <laughs> it would be like an <laughs> I'd probably like, because even still, I mean, my, I, the airline ruined my carry-on bag, and I have yet to replace it. I'm like, oh, I'll just put what I need in my big bag. It doesn't have to be so heavy. <laughs> and it's like you do, oh. sort of, you know, you do sort of pack for the size. So I'm like, well, I have the big bag. I'll decide in the morning. But, no, I, I definitely could use some uh, paring down. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I can't check a bag because I'm in a different city every day. Yeah. Um, and the bag would never catch up to me if it got lost. So I basically just have one carrying bag. Now, the thing that works in my favor is because I'm seeing different people every day, I can wear the same thing on multiple days because I just put it on for the – I put my nice outfit on for the one hour that I'm on stage, and then I take it off again as soon as I get off stage. So I can literally get away with one nice outfit for 17 days. I know well, it sounds yeah. gross, but it's just the same as you wearing one outfit all day long. No, it is. You know, it for is. an entire day. Yeah, no, if you divide the time up, you're only wearing it. And as a keynote, you're not really sitting there. I know in people who do more speak to sell, you're kind of sitting in the back of the room all day. So you have to sort of look ready and prepared. And you can be sitting there for three days seeing what, you know, the other offers and what other people are doing. But as a keynote, you can pretty much get them in, get them out rawhide and just, you know, wear, wear yeah. your outfit and, and pack your bag and go. Yep, exactly. So tell me, um, how did you get into this? Like, how did you become, you know, the girl who decided to climb? Were you a little girl who decided, like, that mountain's just not high enough for me? I need to go. (laughs) (laughs) No, great question. So uh, when I was younger, for whatever reason, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. And I would read these books and I'd watch documentary films. And... Uh, I, I was also, side note, born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. So I had my second heart surgery when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, you know what, now that I'm in better health and I'm physically stronger, um, if I want to know what it's like to be Reinhold Messner and pull a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should get out there and do it instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers and these adventurers going to these faraway mountains, then I should go to the faraway mountains instead of just watching documentary films about them. And I just thought, well, if these other people can do all of these things, then why can't I? You know, what's stopping me? And that's just kind of how it started. So I didn't even climb my first mountain until I was 32 years old. Wow. Wow. Yeah, because I know, because um, I have a place in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and there, like, one of my, my, my favorite places to shop is Teton Mountaineering, and it's only because, it's not because I'm buying my ice picks or anything, or maybe in my dreams I am, <laughs> but it's because they have really good outdoor clothes for just the, the regular crazy cold weather there, yeah. and, and normal winter sports. 
but I'm just amazed at some of these people and what they climb there. My my husband once um, climbed the Tetons. He climbed the Grands, and I know my son and I were like, <gasps> and and he almost he had the same a similar problem as he's not nearly as <laughs> difficult, but he did not get to the top peak. He missed it by a, a couple of hundred feet. His, pulled his knee and it was just the weather was changing and it was getting dark and it was like you couldn't do it but um you know and it was his first climb and god I feel better I was thinking it was his last climb I know he wants to do it again but I was we were pretty nervous but I know that the first time you didn't make the top of Everest you almost got to the tip you almost got to the peak and and again like how does that feel to just almost reach your goal (laughs) when it's like that amount and you're like you know, someone like me, like, oh, it's just a few hundred feet. Like, oh. Well, you right. Did it. Oh. So um, that was very much of a defining moment for me for, for many reasons. Um, so, you know, I was the team captain of the first American women's Everest expedition. So we were the, you know, first team of American women climbing Everest together. This was back in 2002. We were sponsored by Ford. So we had this you know, this big corporate sponsor and all this media attention because we're the first American women's Everest expedition. 450 media outlets were following our climb. CNN's doing live updates from the mountain. And then we missed the top by 200 feet because of bad weather. So, you know, it was a very public, you know, let's call it a failure, right? Failure reached <laughs> the top. Very public failure. And you have all this media attention, right? We did all the talk shows and all the Evening news anchors were interviewing us, and then we didn't make it. So you have to come back and, you know, do the whole talk show circuit again and talk about what happened. And you go from, (laughs) excuse me, you go from being this, like, celebrated figure who's, you know, the team captain of the first American women's Everest expedition, and you're inspiring all these people. And then you come back, and you're just the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke. And (laughs) You know, you go, you go back to the Today Show, and Ann Curry's like, "Welcome back!" Oh, you know, like sad face, and so it's very, you know, it's hard to try something that's so far out of your comfort zone. That's such a big challenge, and then to publicly not achieve this goal. So it took me eight years before I got up enough courage to go back to Everest wow. and try it again. And when I made it the second time, uh, on my second attempt, what I realized was that standing on the top of that mountain wasn't really important. What is important are the lessons you learn along the way, mm-hmm. you know, when you're fighting like hell to get up there and what you're going to do with that information to be better going forward. So I think that for me was a defining moment because it taught me about the importance of, you know, not letting the failure define you, but letting the ex- experience, you know, lend itself to helping you be better going forward. Absolutely. And the mountain really, you know, when, after reading your book, after reading On the Edge, the mountain really is the metaphor for life. It is, you know, right. It's, it's just, it's there. But on the same token, you know, m- my Jewish mother upbringing would say, you almost made it. What's 200 feet? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and what people need to realize is what people need to realize is that when you're up at that elevation, you know, at 28,000 feet, 28,700 feet, you have to take five to ten breaths for every step in order to catch your breath again because it's so difficult to breathe at that elevation. Because when people 
look at the photos that I have and they see that we were just 200 feet from the summit, they look at the photo and they say, you know, why didn't you just run and touch the tippy top and then run back <laughs> down? But what they don't yeah. realize is you cannot run up there. You're taking 10 breaths for every step. So it's very slow going at that elevation. And how long does it actually take you to get up there? For the, I mean, how many base camps do you go through? And I, I know you also have to stop, and unfortunately you have to see some, you know, people who didn't make it along the way. Like, can you just describe well, a little bit of how long of the experience of sure. getting up there? So the entire experience of climbing Everest takes about two months. And it's going to take you about 10 days just to hike to base camp. And then once you get to base camp, you have to spend a few days there to get used to the altitude because it's over 17,000 feet just at your base camp. So you've got base camp and then you've got four camps above base camp to get to um, before you actually make an attempt at the summit. And uh, you you actually climb partway up the mountain and then you have to come back down and be lower again. And then you climb up higher and then you climb lower again. And people are always confused when they hear that description of how you climb because they think that you just go straight up the mountain. But you have to keep coming back down in between each successive camp because, like I said, your body has to get used to the altitude mm -hmm. very slowly. But also when you get up to elevations above 18,000 feet, your body is actually deteriorating. So you want to come back down just so you can eat, sleep, hydrate, and regain some strength. So... It's interesting because you don't just climb straight up the mountain. You're climbing up and down and up higher and down again and up even higher again and back down. So in order to make progress on the mountain, you're not just climbing in one direction. You're, you're climbing up and you actually have to backtrack quite a bit um, in order to eventually get to the top. Yeah, and it's just, I know because from Jackson Hole, I mean, it's a pretty high elevation. <clears throat> I, what is it? There's 11,000. I don't know. My, my husband would be the one who would get it down to the exact, you know, millimeter. But I even know for myself there, and something just as normal living out there, that there is a certain amount of time to get used to the altitude, to just, you know, to breathe better. And I, this is our house. I mean, I've been there, I think this year will be my 70-something trip to a to, to get there. So I've been there many, many times. And I still know for myself, it's just living there. It takes me sometimes a couple of days. So I can't even imagine what your body would go through and just going up and down the mountain every day and what you have to do to just sort of prepare yourself to, so, so that your body can live up to your experience. So, yeah, you really, um, you know, that's part of the, you know, there are a lot of frustrating aspects of climbing a big mountain like Everest. But, you know, I think one of the most difficult things, not just physically, but psychologically, is that part about you got to come back down to a lower elevation before you can head back up. And I think it's a really good metaphor for anything in life and just to realize that in order to make progress, Sometimes you have to go in a different direction than what you initially anticipated. Mm -hmm. So when you have to, when you feel like you're going backwards and you're not moving toward your goal, don't look at that as any type of defeat. You know, just look at that as you're still making progress even though you're going in a different direction. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant point. And I think so many people also, you know, they tell you to take baby steps to soar and, you know, there's, there's just really no overnight success. Most overnight successes take, you know, 
a decade. <laughs> There's a few, but most of us take a really long time. And it's you get ahead, you go back, you get ahead, you go back, you get ahead, you go back until it really just sticks. And then it looks so easy. But there was so much work and preparation and success and failure that comes with everything we do, particularly in business yep. and, and, and in life. And it's just important for everyone to keep that in mind. So yep. when you were doing all of this, what was the single best piece of advice you were ever given when you were, you know, on how on, on how to just continue being in charge and, and taking charge and leading and going on all this mountaineering? What was the one thing that, you know, if there was one thing that just you can sort of your nuggets to, to just sure. ascending? Um. I think it has to do with managing fear. So in anything in life, whether you're climbing a big mountain or skiing to the North Pole or the South Pole or starting a new business or you get a new job or a new promotion or you're entering into a new relationship or, I mean, anything in life, any kind of life change. You're having kids. You're uh, getting a dog. I mean, you know, everyone's got life-changing experiences. For me, uh, the best piece of advice has to do with managing fear. And look, you know, you got to realize fear is just a normal human emotion, mm -hmm. uh, but you can learn how to use fear to your advantage. And that's what I do. For me, I look at fear as a good thing because fear keeps me alert on my toes and aware of everything going on around me. When fear becomes dangerous is when it paralyzes you. So that's what you have to think about is that fear is okay. It's just a normal human emotion. So if you feel fear, you're like, yeah, this is good. Fear is good. It's going to keep me aware, awake, you know, and able to, to move quickly. Complacency is what will kill you, mm -hmm. right? When you're climbing Mount Everest, there are all these scary parts of the mountain. So the Kumbu Icefall is probably the scariest part of the mountain, and that's where most of the accidents occur. And the Kumbu Icefall is made up of, 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge, moving ice chunks. What happens is the sun comes up, everything starts to melt. These big, huge ice chunks, they start to shift around so you're in constant danger of being crushed. It is one of the most terrifying parts of the mountain. It is one of the most terrifying things I've ever experienced. But once I learned how to manage that fear, that fear would keep me moving, that's when I knew I was going to be okay. And complacency, you know, failure to move, failure to react to your environment is really what puts you at risk. So that's the advice I would give to people is that realize fear is okay. You can use fear to your advantage. Complacency is what will kill you. That's great. Yeah, it's true. And anything you do, and I think so many people, it's just they get stuck in a rut in any way you look at it. And they, don't, they're, you know, they think they're, they're kind of paddling. But they, it's like they're, they're paddling, they're paddling, they're paddling, but there's no water. You know, so they're not going anywhere. They're just right. standing there thinking they're looking for all these shiny objects to distract from the fact that they are complacent and they are in a rut. And they're really not doing anything about it, but they're camouflaging all this other little busyness with the fact that they're not, you know, they're not taking themselves up to the next level. And it's, it's, right. it's, and, it's and it's sad. Fear is really what prevents people from taking risks. Right. Um, and it's usually a fear of failure. But what you have to remember is that, hey, failure is temporary. Failure never defines you. Right. Failure is one of the most incredible learning experiences. And the, you know, the more I look at it is, you know, the more I fail, the more I'm going to learn and the better I'm going to be the next time around. And 
So you've got to use, learn how to use fear to your advantage and don't ever let it stop you from taking a risk or trying something new or setting a ridiculously high goal for yourself. As you did many, many times. <laughs> so um, that said, most people cannot achieve what you have had what you've done, particularly on, on your adventure level. But if somebody just wanted to make their life a little bit more amazing this week, what do you think we could tell them to do? We've, we've already covered fear, you know, and just, just fighting the bullet and, you know, learning from your past experiences. Right. And what do you think would make people more amazing this week, even anything besides business, leadership, style, climbing, taking a chance? Taking a risk? I think it's trying something that you're pretty sure you can't do, right? Like trying something you've always thought about, but you're like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. Go try it and go fail at it. Like I, you know, getting back to that theme again, I just think that's where you learn the most about yourself. And people just assume you know, oh, you know, this is something that's out of my reach or this is something that's too foreign to me or this is something I'm scared to do or this is something I'm pretty sure I can't do that. I always say find something you're pretty sure you can't do and just go try it because you might surprise yourself and you might amaze yourself. And, you know, now is the time to do it. Look, we're all on this planet for such a limited amount of time and you never know, you know, how many tomorrows you're going to have. So just tell yourself today is the day. Find the time. Find the motivation. Try something you're pretty sure you can't do. And just go learn from the experience. And you'd be surprised at, you know, the types of things and possibilities and opportunities that will open up to you when you try something and you fail. You know, people always think it's a bad thing. And, you know, if you only go try things that you know you can do or that you know you're going to be good at, like you're never really going to get out of your comfort zone and you're never really going to push yourself all that hard. And I always remind people, you know, about Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, right? Everybody knows, well, not everybody, but anyone that knows a little something about the history of Mount Everest knows those names, Sir Edmund Hillary, Tenzing Norgay, right? First guys to ever summit that mountain. There were dozens of climbers who tried and failed before those two made it to the summit. But, and no, you know, granted, nobody knows their names, but those two, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, they had the benefit of the 411, right? All the information from those previous climbers. And maybe if those other guys hadn't tried and failed, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay would never have made it to the summit. So that's why, you know, our personal failures are important not only for us, but for the people who may follow in our footsteps, because they can learn a lot from our failures as well. Mm -hmm. Our legacy. Absolutely. That, that's just brilliant. That's really, it's brilliant. Because I think so many people are just, they're afraid of themselves, you know? <laughs> and it's just like, you need, we need to push ourselves every day. It just keeps the blood going. Yes. Well, yeah. and the other thing I really want people to remember is that you don't have to be the best, the fastest, the strongest. Look, I am, you know, five foot four. I am, you know, I, a, a heavy backpack weighs me down much more so than it would somebody who's six foot two and 230 pounds. I am never very fast. I am never very strong. But what I really want people to remember is you don't have to be the best, the fastest, and the strongest. 
You just have to be absolutely relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. And that's how you get to the top of the mountain. That's right? great. You that's get brilliant. to the top by being relentless. So forget about needing to be the, the best and the fastest and the strongest and the most skilled. Not important. Being relentless is the most important thing when it comes to climbing a mountain. That's great. That's great. And that's a tweetable. <laughs> Brings us back to where we met. So um, it, before we, we leave, let, I want everyone to know that they should pick up On the Edge, which is your book. It's just, it's fantastic. It's a couple of years out now and it's just, it's wonderful. It's funny and it's, it's just a fantastic, fantastic read. Oh, thanks. And, yeah, you and, can get it on Amazon or wherever. I think my favorite Amazon review said, all the suspense of into thin air, but without the depression. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I did try to keep it kind of funny. <laughs> it is kind of funny. Like you have this one line where you where you were waiting because there was a protest and you were stuck in a sizzler, and your answer is, you know, at least you're stuck in an all-you-can-eat dessert bar, you know. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> got to get down to reality. So I I know you're working on a movie on the glass ceiling. If you want to talk to us a little bit about that too before we go, because that's a fascinating story as well. Sure. I uh, actually just got back from Nepal a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, well, I was climbing a mountain over there, uh, but I was also uh, oh, working on this film called. The Glass Ceiling. So it's about, um, it's an amazing story about the very first Nepali woman to climb Mount Everest, Pasang Lamu Sherpa. And she literally was not allowed to climb Everest because she was a woman and they didn't let Nepali women climb. And although she was born, you know, into a family who was dirt poor, she couldn't read, she couldn't write, she had no formal education. She had the courage to come forward and fight for the right to climb for herself and all other Nepali women. And she literally had to fight the government of Nepal, the Ministry of Tourism, for the right to climb. And she said, look, you guys let women from 23 other countries come here and climb our mountain, yet you will not allow me. And she was the one that fought for the right to climb, and she made three unsuccessful attempts to reach the summit of Everest. And she finally made it to the summit on her fourth try in 1993, but she died on the way down. Oh. And she so she never lived to like understand the amazing legacy she left. And she left three children behind and uh she became this beloved figure in Nepal. There's a statue of her, there's a museum about her. All the children learn about her in school. She's considered the Rosa Parks of Nepal. Uh-huh. But nobody outside of Nepal knows her story and it's so incredible and it's so inspiring just her determination to change things and fight for social justice and so we're making this film about her life story and um we are we're still actually in the fundraising process so if anyone feels the urge to donate you can donate on our our website it's uh the glass com. you can check out our trailer um but we're hoping to actually get the the movie out by uh sometime in 2017 Fantastic. So that's the glassceilingmovie.com. And if you want to connect more with Allison, you can find her at allisonlevine.com. We've got the On the Edge book at major bookstores and Barnes and Noble. And um, for those of you who are listening on iTunes, Hop on over to the piece about Allison here on Focus on Style. And not only will you get to see some of Allison's climbing photos, you get to see her looking gorgeous on the red carpet. So, I want to thank you. Yeah, I mean, how many people can you say, oh, which picture will get you, like, 
yeah, yeah, and the mountaineer outfit, and oh yeah, the red carpet. Oh, there's a speaking stage. One show, we'll throw it in. It's like, come on, you know, <laughs> the, grand, the grand trifecta of style. <laughs> anyway, so uh, thank you so much. So. I was yeah. going to say thank you so much for having me as a guest on this, and um, I appreciate the opportunity, and it's so great to reconnect with you again. Yeah, same here. I just find you fascinating and brilliant. And everyone, AllisonLevine.com, thank you again for being here, and see you on the next episode of 7 Days to Amazing. That's a wrap. Well, not so fast. Don't forget to hop over to FocusOnStyle.com for exclusive content to help you live your most amazing life with style and success. For even more great stuff that Sharon only shares by email, subscribe to her in the know list at www.focusonstyle.com insiders. See you next time.